Good evening, everyone, or good morning, whenever uh, you may be listening to this podcast. We will be continuing with our latest installment of our venture through church history. We have been discussing the evolutions and innovations that have been very uh, consistently unfolding as it relates to conciliar uh, theology and uh, more uh, pertinent Christology. And we're going to pick up today with our latest uh, installment, which will be the fourth ecumenical council, the Council of Chalcedon. So, hey, let somebody know, grab a notepad. Let's do some study. All right. Uh, As with other councils, as we've stated uh, previously, one of the most uh, easy ways to recognize What a council is named for is just simply to recognize that the council is named uh, what it is named many times because of its name Uh, in Chalcedon uh, would be uh, no uh, different. It would be in the city of Chalcedon that this fourth ecumenical council will be held. And on a map standpoint, this area is somewhat opposite to what we understand to be Byzantium. Uh, And of course, this council, uh, like the others, was held at the uh, beckon of the emperor. It was convoked by the emperor Marcion to deal with the uh, Eutychian heresy. Uh, And it is interesting that there was actually multiple meetings of this. And at the first meeting held on, I was held on October the 8th, 451. It is reported that about 500 to 600 bishops were present. All of them Easterns, except two bishops from the province of Africa and the two papal uh, states. Now, what's interesting about this council is that the decisions of this council, as uh, some would call the Latracinium, Latracinium of 449, where there was somewhat a precursor to this council, was annulled. Now, what's very interesting to make note of we're going to discover that it will be in this council that there is going to be an addressing, if you will, of a previous attempt in the year 449. The council then drew up a statement of faith that historians, for the most part, have gone to call on the Chalcedonian Creed or the Creed of Chalcedon or or uh, better yet, it is a formal articulation that is somewhat different than what we have seen in times past as it relates to how uh, a creed would articulate its doctrinal position. Some of the reasons that this was done was so that there could be an avoidance of misunderstanding of what was meant by the creed's determination. So what you will notice with the creed of Chalcedon is that it somewhat departs away from the liturgical word style that you see present in uh, Nicaea and uh, Ephesus. And it takes very much the form of a doctrinal articulation that explains what is believed about the nature of Jesus Christ. Now, the definition of Chalcedon, which I think is very important, especially for those who have a, dare say, oneness Pentecostal position, What you will find is that many of the primary tenets that are uh, 
presented in Chalcedon are not adversarial to a oneness Pentecostal understanding of the incarnation. Now, it would go without saying that there definitely is a difference between what we are saying in terms of who was incarnate, but the operational infrastructure of how Chalcedon interprets it is not in opposition to a oneness understanding. Now, the reason I'm making this side note on this particular area is because one of the major difficulties I have experienced when speaking to those who have a view that is outside the oneness Pentecostal uh, understanding is that there is usually a big misunderstanding of what we're trying to articulate. My solution to overcome this is to use already existing language that already speaks to certain conclusions that we have come to so that when we are speaking with those who have a Trinitarian viewpoint, uh, we can reduce the odds of us being misunderstood effectively. And so I think this is going to be very needful, not that we want to conform to already existing conciliar thought as it relates to the incarnation, but we definitely want to make sure that we are not giving ammunition to be misunderstood or to be misrepresented. But with the uh, Council of uh, Chalcedon, it will go on in year 445, 451 uh, to be eventually uh accepted by both branches of what we would consider the institutional church identified as the East and the West. And it would be only the Oriental Orthodox churches uh, that would not go along with affirming it as doctrine with the council of Chalcedon. It reaffirms already existing conclusions that have come into uh, the bedrock of the already existing theological framework that has been stated. Uh, by previous councils such as Nicaea and Constantinople uh, and asserted them that they are a sufficient account of what the church and the early church believed about the person of Jesus Christ. But what they're going to do is to make it very clear in their definition and their wording to make sure that there would never be another instance of a person like Nestorius or Eutyches who could present themselves in misuse or uh, disable language to somewhat be the tool of heresy. So what is important to recognize with this council is that it is going to expressly exclude the views of one of those who deny the title Theotokos, which we understand from our last podcast means mother of God uh, to the Virgin Mary, uh, which, again, I would say that I would prefer a Christotokos uh, term instead, which she is the mother of the anointed. And I know as one as Pentecostals, we try to avoid that language because we are very uh, adversarial to any understanding that would even give room for uh, Mariology. Uh, but it is reported by most church historians, and of course, there is room to disagree that the reason Theotokos was adopted was so that Mary could uh, not be worshipped but be understood that the birth of Jesus was a real thing and probably even circumvent uh, future opportunities of docetism. And so what we understand uh, is that this wording is very specific and isn't haphazardly identifying random Christological truths as they saw them. 
The second thing that this creed does is that of those who confuse the divine and human nature in one and therefore hold the divine nature is by confusion passable. Uh, the synodical epistles of Cyril to the Nestorians and to the Eastern uh, to the Easterns and the epistle of Leo to Flavian, the tome are again reasserted, which basically propose and stand on the fact that there is a duality of the son's uh, nature, which could be seen as the passability of the Godhead uh, without mixture and confusion of the natures that the thesis that Christ's nature is both human and divine and the source and the resource of salvation is reaffirmed within their truth. Or I would say in this instance, our truth of understanding how the incarnation works. Christ is declared to be one person in two natures. This is very congruent with one's Pentecostal thought process, the divine of the same substance as the father, the human of the same substance, which are united unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably together. And so what you'll notice within this language, they are really making it clear that there is no room for a understanding uh, that could be uh give ground to a monotholite uh, understanding. And just as a refresher, uh, the monotholite controversy is born out of the monophysite understanding that within the incarnation, Jesus Christ has one nature uh, that is a new nature. That is a mixture of the human and the divine nature, almost like uh, yellow and blue come together and to make green. It's not all the way blue. It's not all the way green, but somehow they work together and they form this new thing that's uh, never been seen before. This makes it very clear that this is not what they are trying to say. Another important thing to understand about the Council of Chalcedon is that there were two variations of understanding of how the incarnation worked that were present at this council. These two understandings can be identified in two schools of thought that are called the Antiochian uh, thought and the Alexandrian thought. The primary difference between the two can be seen first with the Antiochian uh, tendency, which in their articulation of the incarnation, they took special attention to safeguard the humanity of the savior while in opposite the Alexandrians, while still affirming the real divine incarnation made it very clear that their goal in defending the incarnation was to emphasize the divinity of Jesus Christ. And so because of this, the Alexandrian uh, Christology could uh, seem uh, to somewhat be at odds with the Antiochian form of Christology, almost seeming as if there was a disconjunction between uh, the two understandings. Now, the Alexandrian school, as stated before, feared that Jesus would be divided into two persons, one divine and another human. Therefore, his Christology was unitive, as one would say. Among the exponents of the uh, Antiochian tendency before Chalcedon, although there were serious ideas before them, 
we see some uh, serious uh, thought leaders who have some interesting ideas. And just as a point of reference, we have some gentlemen who are going to be well known to us historically. Uh, we have Paul of Samosota, who was a Nicene himself. We're going to have Eustathius of Antioch, who is a fourth century bishop who was present uh, at the Council of Nicaea. And what's going to be prevalent uh, among some of these gentlemen who are going to disagree at times is that uh, this gentleman would go on to be accused of being a Sabalian himself, uh, as would Paul of Samosota. And, of course, the legend, the myth, the man himself, Nestorians. And even though the uh, Alexandrians approach to Christology is different, we do have some thought leaders on their side uh, who are going to be prevalent, such as the gentleman who would or better yet, who was addressed in the past as Apollinarius. Now, in the Council uh, of Ephesus, which was the precursor council to this council, the extreme Antiochian position personified in Nestorius had been condemned but what we must understand is that this tendency of the Antiochian idea to uh, protect the true humanity of Christ uh, was probably a result of the regional hermeneutic in how they defended the deity of Jesus Christ. It's going to be from then on the Alexandrian party of defending the incarnation is going to begin to take a prominent role in place uh, in the ability for them to make calls as it uh, relates to the Christology of Jesus Christ. Now, as stated earlier, there was an attempt at a synod uh, prior to Chalcedon. We would eventually have Pope Leo, who were going to call the attempted council before this, the robbers of Senate. Uh, which would go on to mean that they were trying to convene the council without uh, the fairness that is required for everyone to come to a consensus on the nature of Jesus Christ. And it would be, of course, these things that, as stated previously, that would put the steps in place so that any confusion or unnecessary uh, disunity could be avoided. For the sake of uh, scholastic clarity, I want to read the Council of Chalcedon's statement on the nature of Jesus Christ, quote, Jesus Christ is perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, true God and true man of rational soul and body. This is obviously a clause against the Apollinarius consubstantial with the father, according to the divinity. This is against Arius and also consubstantial with us, according to the humanity this is against Eutyches of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God. This is against the Nestorians and two natures against Eutyches and Discorus. Without confusion, without mutation, without division, without separation and without the dis uh, disappearance of the difference in the natures because of the union. But conserving the properties of each nature and uniting them in the one person or hypostasis with all that and uniting them in one person or hypostasis, not divided or split into two persons. Another reference clearly aimed at Nestorius, but at the same time, the only begotten son. In conclusion, the outcome of the Council of Chalcedon worked to establish what would be the Christological orthodoxy 
for Trinitarians, uh, definitely in the West and for many of them who were in the East. It would only be fair to recognize that some did not accept the outcomes of the council because it seemed to uh, include a position that favored the Alexandrian position. These persons gathered uh, beyond the borders of what we would understand as the then Roman Empire in Persia, where they formed, which is now called the Nestorian Church, which still, interestingly enough, exists today. And of course, there were others who favored uh, breaking away from the. And on the other side of this. We have those who did not like the Creed of Chalcedon because it seemed to Antiochian to them in its conclusions. These churches are called monophysite because they support and they readily affirm without hesitation that in Christ there is only one nature. Some of the more well-known, uh, the modern Coptic church, the church of Ethiopia, the church of Armenia, the Jacobite church of Syria and some others. So, Hey, we have gone through the key points of the council of Chalcedon from, uh, the year 451. Uh, we look forward to picking back up next time. And as always, it is the whole gospel to the whole world by the whole church. The Lord bless you in Jesus.